Happy Monday, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host. I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And this is we are here in the last few seconds of... Uh, of Apollo, th- of Apollo 13's lunar module is, uh, or the last uh, manned moments of, uh, of Aquarius, and uh, getting a lot of great, lot of great uh, stuff going on in this particular episode. I do like the way that they managed to frost up the windows and things. Yeah, you know th- this, th- this, this sort of emotional, uh, you know, it's sort of emotional as they're getting ready to close out the limb. I mean, it's a, uh, um, you know, it's a machine that was sort of. Sort of I don't want to say it's it's not um, famous or, or or anything like that. It certainly has played part in famous missions, but it wasn't glamorous. Let's put it that way. It's not an F-86 jet or something yeah. like that. It's just this sort of angular, kind of long, yeah, big, tooth u- looking thing. Big, <laughs> you know? Yeah, big, ugly bug kind of a but it Yeah, exactly. Grow, it does grow on you as you look at it. I mean, it feels like it. It's it's such an iconic device nowadays though i mean when when people first saw it it was just like ew that just doesn't look like anything <laughs> you know what it reminds me of it reminds me of what you think of when you first t- kind of look at an army jeep yeah like the old world war ii willie's army jeep it you know it's not pretty i mean it's just this it, it wasn't meant to be pretty um yet the more you're around them the more you're like you know those are pretty cool <laughs> yeah know? yeah no it's a sturdy little thing and it's it's designed to do one thing really well, and it does. It does do it. You know, it it, it got us to the surface of the moon uh, six times, and uh, you know they really never had any failures with it. It was always a, a you know a great a great working machine, and uh, they got, they kept getting better and better. I mean, you could if, by the end they were strapping cars on the outside of them. They were landing <laughs> up in the mountains uh, with cars strapped on them. I just, it's an amazing machine that, uh, you know, the, the boys from Long Island really did, did a great job. I always love that uh, there's a cool documentary called Last Man on the Moon, and it's about Gene Cernan. Yeah. And I always love there's sort of a scene where he's thinking back and he's like, you know, I had a house up there and a car. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, and it's all just still waiting up there for me to come back, you know, and uh I always, I don't know why that just always uh, gives me a tickle about that. Yeah, it's just, it's just the way. I mean, the the way things were going. That was, that was as close as we came to a, a little lunar colony, and uh, it was only three days was the longest. But uh, you know, they were just intensely uh, wonderful little machines. Um, and it's just made by, you know, made by folks who just started with doodles on napkins saying why don't we do this why don't we do that and then they started shaving off the parts they didn't need until they got down to this optimized uh device and and we, we've talked about this in the past the uh, uh the episode spider from from the earth to the moon but oh, it really yeah. gives you an idea of how how much thought went into this machine because it was unlike anything that had ever been built it was built for space and nowhere else so i love the scene where they uh <laughs> They were talking about going from the big windows to the small rectangular windows, or triangle windows, and um, 
I think it was Tom Kelly that said, you know, sorry, I, you know, I'm just not, I'm having a hard time seeing that. And then the engineers uh, actually made a section of the limb out of cardboard. Yeah. Uh, so that he could stand there and look out the window, and he's like, okay, I, you know, I get your point now. <laughs> and, I, and I was reading in his book, his uh, autobiography, that, uh, and that was true. They really did that. Yeah, Moon, yeah, Moonlander. We keep bringing up all these other books about, <laughs> you know, about the thing, but. Really, if you enjoy our show and you really want to get a bigger picture of all this stuff, read all these books. All, all these guys that were part of it. I mean, if you read, um, like, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Kranz or or Lost Moon by by Jim Lovell, you really get the feel of what the day-to-day was like and what they were thinking about, what was in their heads while they were while they were building all this stuff. Um, it just, it, But it is a very poignant scene here. A little, you know, it's rather um rather stretching reality i mean when uh when jim lovell was looking out at the earth uh taking taking that last view his his very last view from space because he would never go to space again um he would uh or so far we haven't <laughs> he, never, he, he might he might get the bug again who knows um but he uh you know he was looking out over a pre-dawn earth um this picture isn't quite right because his his view from eleven thousand miles out was uh, the middle of the Indian Ocean. He was uh, he was actually traveling. Uh, well, we'll get into it a little bit later. He was he was traveling eastbound uh, over Thailand into uh, uh, into the Indian Ocean, and uh, I'm trying to figure out if they're trying to show like Southern Australia here. I couldn't I can't figure out what the landmass is, but he's look he's looking in the pre-dawn hours, and uh, he definitely wasn't looking at Maryland because Maryland was in a was in two different hemispheres. He was in the southeastern part of the world and she was in the north uh western hemisphere um and uh it was uh about 12 31 in the afternoon where she was so, so do you think they got the uh the general kind of attitude or altitude right uh, i was wondering about that earlier because in my head at least i mean granted i've never flown in space <laughs> but uh like when i was watching i'm like that seems low like he seems yeah yeah, I mean, I I mean maybe that yeah. is, you know, they were just really trying to drive that home for you. But did well, you think I, that too? Or I, I, yeah, I thought they should really see more of a ball. He's eleven thousand miles up, so the Earth is only twenty five thousand miles wide. So I would think that you would see at least half the Earth out your window. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, but you know, it's I guess it's, they're just being a poetic license here. But yeah, this looks like it's only maybe, maybe two, three hundred miles up. Just, yeah, yeah. It just, I, and I was wondering if maybe they're just trying to drive home the, the, the feeling to you of, oh boy, they're getting down there and close, and yeah, you but, know, that's why we're closing out the lamb and getting ready for, uh, you know, for jettison. Yeah, I mean, either that or he's got really good eyesight because I can't imagine spotting <laughs> some of these smaller cloud formations. I mean, well, when you're flying a plane, you can pretty well tell when you're at two thousand feet, when you're at five thousand feet, right? When you look out the window, generally. Yeah, you have. I think you have a general feel. I mean, uh, without looking at the instruments or something like that, uh, I, I think you generally have a feel. I would argue between surface level up to maybe like five thousand, and then I think. Yeah, you probably start to lose it after that. You know, just yeah. how high you are. I mean, you, you certainly have a good estimate, um, but you know, obviously, you have an altimeter there, so you don't have to do that. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But but generally, yeah. I mean, I think I think aviators are, you know, a decent. Now, you know, of course, that's being able to uh, actually look out and see the ground. Um, if you can't, you know, if you're in cloud cover or something like that, you're your guess is as good as anybody. So yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what, but yeah. when I. When I, I don't I don't fly that much general aviation. But when when I'm in a general aviation plane, it always seems like we're at about 
2,500 feet all the time. I just, yeah. Because they want to, you know, they want to like follow the roads and watch, you know, yeah. watch out. The, whenever you're going across, you know, for the, the $100 hamburger one. Exactly. You're usually r- running at about 2,000 feet. And I, I know what 2,000 feet looks like from the, I mean, this is more than 2,000 feet, but it's definitely <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah, it's definitely not, you know, 11,000 miles. This away. almost seems like a little higher than like, uh, like, I don't know. And I'm probably way off, you know, but when I was watching, I'm like, wow, this almost looks like, like, like U2 footage or something. You'd see <laughs> yeah, window, yeah, almost. You know? Yeah, I, I, it, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's yeah. really, if if you can see, I mean, I don't know. I just, I, I think we're probably overthinking the five seconds. Well, I point. think we are, yeah. And, and <laughs> my my guess is this is taken off of a gigantic plate that was taken off the space the space shuttle. You know, this is probably like a 1995 yeah. picture that they got off of Atlantis or something. And looking out the window, here's a, you know. <laughs> It doesn't say Getty <laughs> Images in the corner, but it might as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and Still it, really it, cool. I mean, really, uh, I think the thing that I keep forgetting is I keep holding this movie up to today's standards. I'm not Yeah. I'm not putting it. The whole time we've done this podcast, I haven't put it back at, well, for 1995. Like, I'm still holding it up to today's movie saying, well, it, it still it still stands up to these other ones, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's every bit as good as First Man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and in terms of storytelling, I think it does as good a job as any other um, show that that I've seen. Uh, you know, it it tells the story, and it, you understand the story, and you're never. I've never felt in this thing that I'm not looking at somebody in space. I get you right. Know, you, yeah. you see, you see Tom Hanks looking out the window. You feel like this is him looking out, and just you know, he's not in a. He's not Universal. He he didn't just come for lunch at a Lancashire Boulevard after having a hot dog and climbed into his set and then here we're gonna shoot the movie. Right. Um, yeah. Th- this this feels like a, a guy that's cold inside of a lunar module watching the Earth coming at him. So so let me tell you a funny story about that since we're, okay. we're you, you brought that up. Um, so it's something my old man used to do. Uh, my dad when we'd watch this movie, um. You know, I, I don't know. This house was maybe the house was maybe set at sixty-eight degrees or whatever. Huh. And whenever after the explosion, for a long time, I didn't realize he was doing this. My dad in the film after the explosion uh, would kind of sneak away, and he would turn the temperature down in the air conditioning <laughs> in the house. And honest to God, like you'd be up there, and you're like, God, I'm you know, I this movie is so filmed so well that I'm freezing with these guys, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, when they, you know, when they start to come back, he'd, he'd turn the heat up, you know, or, or turn the AC uh, not as cold. And, uh, uh, but I'll tell you, it was kind of fun. We actually did it again when we watched Band of Brothers and the Battle of the Bulge scenes. Oh, turn really? <laughs> turn the, you know, the temperature down a little bit and help set the mood. And it's like, God, it, wow. you know, when it, when it warms up again, you're like, God, I'm great, good to get out of there, you know. You, and you, uh, you, Your dad was like the, the William Castle of, uh, of Pittsburgh. <laughs> Castle, yeah. Castle films, they had, you know, Smell-O-Vision. And yeah, Tingler. yeah, that's, that's it. Like, yeah. I, I didn't know for years he had done that, by the way. And, and uh, I caught him doing it one time, and I'm just like, have you always done that? And he's like, yeah, I thought it was fun, you know. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah. He, yeah, he, he totally understands the, the movie experience. <laughs> he does, yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Um, well, we're looking at, uh, while we're looking at supposedly uh, Jim and Marilyn Lovell looking at each other when they're actually looking at totally different parts of the sky, um, this is a great, uh, it, this this is a really good uh, example of something that it, it's, it's part psychology and a lot of it's part of film history. There's a, uh, there's an effect a psychological event uh, that's called the Kuleshov effect, and it's a it's a way of editing a film 
uh, so that you have it, it. We have a human beings have this mental phenomenon there where viewers uh, get more meaning out of the inter out of the interaction between two sequential shots than from a shot by itself. So when you're when you're watching this shot, you know when you think if you think about it, uh, you know they have Tom Hank Tom Hanks is in a studio looking out a window, and some other time even maybe before they even shot the Tom Hanks scene. Um, uh, Mar Carlton Quinlan playing Marilyn uh, they took a picture of her looking out a window and so these are two separate shots that have nothing to do with each other they, they're just looking out they're looking out Marilyn uh, Lovell is expressionless as she's looking out the window and uh, Jim Lovell looks a little bit worried when he's looking out the window but he's you know it, that's just he was told look worried and look out the window like he's trying to see something when you put those two pictures together you know you cut from cut from Jim Lovell to Marilyn Lovell, your brain fills in the blanks and say, oh, they're, they're thinking about each other and looking at each other, and they're both worried about how this is all coming out and how they're ever going to see it again. And you're drawn into this. You're drawn into this movie because your brain, your brain is always looking for a story. It's like, it's like the way you always see faces and things when you see two dots in a line. You go, oh, that's a happy face. But it's, no, it's two dots in a line. But your brain tries to make stories and connect the dots literally uh, together, so you're trying to create a story here just by seeing these two scenes of people looking out windows. So you say, "Oh, they're both thinking of each other," and it, this has been known, you know, 110 years ago. This first was was promoted in 1910 uh, by a, by a, a Russian cinematographer named Kuleshov, and uh, it's something that you know. This is a, one of the oldest effects in. Uh, in filmmaking it's one of the basics of, of making a film but here it's still used to great effect because we are conditioned to throw our emotions in with these two uh, uh, you know, with with these sequential images so uh, I you know I, okay film school mode off that was <laughs> <laughs> that, um, but that, that's cool I, I mean that's certainly something that's interesting in the filmmaking process yeah, and you know, I mean, we've we're, we get so accustomed to it that when it gets changed up, uh, we get thrown for a loop, and it's like, oh, well, uh, here's an example. If you think of the movie, um, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. There's a scene where um, the killer, Ted Levine, is is the killer, and he's uh, he uh, he's uh, sitting, you know, he's downstairs with his with his kidnapped victim, and he's playing with uh, moths and stuff and butterflies uh and meanwhile we see a picture of a house being surrounded by fbi agents and uh, state troopers are in ohio and they've all got guns and they're ready to bust into the house and uh we see one of the police officers goes up to the door and rings the doorbell and then we cut back to the uh to the uh, the killer the, uh, the, the the guy that kidnapped all these women uh, he he looks up and goes to the front door and he opens the front door and we're expecting to see the uh, the state troopers and the FBI all ready to grab him, but what it is is we've been faked out, and all we see is um, uh, is Jodie Foster by herself out you know out trying to find this guy, and we we had we were so used to a sequence a sequence of seeing people outside of a house and seeing the killer and seeing the people outside of the house that our brain was knitting together that the people the FBI agents were outside of his house, but actually it was two different events happening in two different places, so. Uh, it kind of it throws the audience for a loop, and uh, that's all. That's all due to the fact that we watch so many movies with with this kind of sequential uh, storytelling. Anyway, we're I, I know Silence of the Lambs and 
Apollo 13 don't have much in common, but it's <laughs> very, that's one place very where interesting uh, uh, to bring that one in. <laughs> wow. Well, which which yeah. part of Silence of the Lambs was actually filmed at the Allegheny County Airport where I used to work? Oh, okay, yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, Pittsburgh is, I mean, besides, besides Night of the Living Dead, there are a lot of great movies made in Pittsburgh. There so, are. That was yeah. actually, uh, uh, it was, so, one of the Batmans, I don't know which one, uh, one of the more recent ones uh, with, jeez, um, uh, who plays Batman now? I don't know, Christian Bale or? Um, yes, one of those ones was filmed in Pittsburgh. And the only reason I know that was because I was going to work and I was at a red light behind the Batmobile. Oh, wow. And like they were literally just like driving the, the Rumbler or whatever they call that one, like around oh, town. Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it, it, there's a lot of interesting movies uh, filmed in that town, that's for sure. Wow. And I see what Cleveland is starting to get more and more filmed in there too. Yeah, yeah. Cle- Cleveland has a lot of. Uh, I mean, they use it for a lot of post-apocalyptic things because there's a lot of there's a lot of empty real estate, and pe- what they're <laughs> yeah. what they look for is places. A lot of times they'll dress up one or two. Like you, you buy an you rent an abandoned building and then do a full dress up on one or two uh, offices because a lot of the old buildings, even if they're falling apart, they usually have great views out the window, so you can show a city scene. Um, and not pay a lot. You know, you, you don't have to like rent Manhattan real estate or build a big green screen. You just build a a, a set inside an older building that has a good window view, and uh, it, it it works. So um, it's it's funny how all these little towns they can make money just off the views they have out of their abandoned uh, retail buildings. <laughs> you know, my uh, my so my daughter's named Elizabeth, and uh, we were on a road trip here uh, a while back, and. We were in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and we were going oh. through there. And, of course, there was a movie uh, named Elizabethtown that takes place in this town. We were all excited and geeked out, so we went there and took a picture of a big wall mural that, you know, and stuff like that. And then, like, later I read that, like, nothing was actually filmed in Elizabethtown. <laughs> the entire oh. movie was filmed, like, one town over for some reason. <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay, well, we tried. <laughs> I re- Although Elizabethtown, I... I may be misremembering this, but uh, uh, Jim Varney, who used to do all the Ernest P. Worrell uh, commercials before he did the movies, back when he was just making commercials, um, I think he filmed them in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. His he, he grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, but I think he oh no kidding he did uh, he did a lot of his uh, commercial work in Elizabethtown. Uh, so that's very interesting. <laughs> Is that the same guy that played like Ernest? Yeah, Ernest. Yeah, like Ernest yeah. goes to camp yeah. and all that. Yeah, that guy. Now we've gone full circle. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah, yeah. Silence He's... of the Lambs, Apollo thirteen, <laughs> and Ernest goes to camp in what episode? That's... so many, so many movies yeah. by minutes out there. That's like a hat trick. Where we got? Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, uh, we're just we're watching them button up the uh, the limb, and uh, it always a fascinating. I, I, to me, it's always been amazing how they how they came up with the connections and the disconnections for the command module and the. And the lunar module. Uh, we uh, were watching uh, Lovell uh, cranks the uh, cranks the hatch closed and then uh, equalizes the pressure on the other side. The way that the uh, the LEM was jettisoned, they didn't have to fire the RCS thrusters. All they did was unlatch it, and the air pressure is only 4.7 psi inside. The air pressure inside the tunnel pushed the LEM uh, out. Away from uh, away from the command module. I mean, there were springs that there were springs that un that unlocked, 
but uh, the pressure that was the air that was within the tunnel was what uh, kind of shoved it away from uh, from the command module. Now, did um, I have to? Did I read something um, early on that they weren't sure how that was going to work, and there was a um, there was a college university that actually helped work and research that if this would work correctly, like they they weren't one hundred percent sure it would go this way or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And they, there was they, a university. I can't remember which one it was. They got involved. Yeah, the um, uh, the um, oh gosh, I, can't, I, I know I it might have been MIT or no, it may, it may have been per. Uh, see, I don't want to say it because it. Well, yeah, somebody, I don't want to say it, but I know there was a college involved in it somewhere. Yeah, I want to say either uh, either I want to say Purdue, but I don't. I, I I'm just wondering if that I'm just confusing that with being Neil Armstrong's alma mater. Um, but so, yeah, some engineering group uh, tried tested it out, and they. I mean, they extensively tested what was going on with uh, Apollo Nine. They did all kinds. I mean, they were worried that they were worried that the hatch connection wouldn't work, and could they transfer between the lunar module and the command module? And that's why you know Rusty Swiker and Dave Scott were outside to see if they could if they could pass people back and forth. If the lunar module would dock, but they couldn't get through the docking port, uh, could they could they go in from do, you know door to door as it were? And and that that worked out. So they never really. Uh, had to worry too much about that. Um, there were I mean, there were later problems in Apollo Apollo fourteen had all kinds of uh, docking problems with the uh, with the probe unit on the command module, but that's that's another story. But it's uh, but yeah, there there it's really tricky trying to connect two things with different pressures and um, you know and so much torquing going on on these very thin metals. So uh, just trying to get them to connect right in the first place was an amazing thing, let alone getting them to release. Um, I'm glad we did get the, um, one thing I'm, I'm glad we cleared up and that, well, it it was funny that he, we always, as as always, we go back to Frank Borman, but I was always wondering if they had brought a a probe on the, on Apollo 8 just to, just to try it out in deep space. And he said they didn't need to, they didn't bother with it. So it wasn't, it wasn't there. (laughs) God. Yeah. That'd be, uh, you know, I, I, I always kind of get chills whenever I hear Frank talk about, you know, the fact that it's a good thing this happened on 13, because yeah. if it happened on 8, we wouldn't be here. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they, they did have, I mean, they did have a, a, a what they call the lunar test article on the uh, on uh, the S4B. It was, just, it was a mass simulator. It was basically a big box filled with water that weighed as much as the lunar module. And uh, after... After they uh, un- after they undocked from the uh, S4B, or they, I don't know what you call it. You, yeah, I guess it would be undocked. They got they got loose from the uh, once they unlatched themselves from the S4B. Uh, Frank did get to uh, do some uh, docking and rendezvous tests in near nearby the uh, S4B. He would he would pull up close to it and see if you know if he could adjust to a targeting uh, marker that was on the outside of the the test article, but he, he didn't have to dock or anything. He just wanted to make sure that he could control his ship enough to, uh, uh to test it out. And th- that would later get tested on Apollo nine. Um, Oh, but, I found it. I oh, found it. Okay. So, uh, the test, the pressure blowing the lunar module off the, uh, Grumman, uh, and, uh, NASA went to the university of Toronto engineers division. And it was led, led by senior scientist Bernard Ecken. Wow. And that's who solved the uh, how much air pressure to use to push the uh, command module off the uh, lunar module. Wow. Uh, yeah. I knew I 
read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's one of those back your mind. Good, good call. Isn't the inter- the internet's a wonderful thing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, um, I yeah. Gosh, and this is our very last second with the uh, with the lunar module. But we'll 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 say a rather famous thing tomorrow. But um, it's uh, it's it's fascinating seeing. I love docking adapters. It's my my whole when I was working on my masters, most of my stuff concerned uh, how docking stuff worked and it's just always fascinating to see the mechanics of it all if you if you go to any any space museum that has i, I know that the kennedy uh kennedy space center if they ever open again uh has some really great close-up uh they have um three-quarter size scale models of, of what they were testing the pro what they call the probe and drogue with and um there are also some good simulators that they have there that that show you what what the tunnel looked like and things and um, it's just fascinating to see these precision. There's so many precision instruments that are strapped on these very thin pieces of metal, um, and it's it's amazing that they all lined up properly and uh, and worked right every time. I mean, pretty pretty much right every time. Yeah, I, I'm always amazed at. I love engineering like that. You know, that uh, there, well, there's so many different complex pieces, like you said, that has to work every time. Um, one of my favorite museum displays. It's not exactly space related, but uh, the Air Force Museum has just—it's just a simple, small little model, but it shows you how the nose gear on a B-58 Hustler uh, retracts. Because if you think about it, there's a big center fuel tank on the B-58. Yeah. And this fuel, this this nose gear has to basically retract around that fuel tank, and it's really interesting. It shows you how to do it. I, I love stuff like that. Yeah, it's, it's just so many middle. It, it's it's like looking inside a grandfather clock. I mean, there's so many gears and and uh, turns and and knobs and levers and and settings, and they all had to be put on with, you know, with torque. Like like when they were getting ready to assemble it, they had to know how much torque to apply on every individual screw and pop rivet, um, and just you know, this this one little picture that we're seeing at the very end, as uh, as uh, Jim Lovell shuts the hatch. Uh, you look at all the little rivets and bolts and things, and you're like, "Wow, that somebody had to put that together." <laughs> yeah, and it it wasn't even a thing like this. They started work on the block twos at the end of '66, so this, you know, inside of four years, they had this whole thing put together down to the uh, the millimeter of uh, of tolerance. Um, yeah, it's kind yeah. of amazing on two different levels. One, like you said, it just the the whole engineering involved. But then, too, like, unless this is an actual piece, like the set design for the movie, uh, that somebody had to copy that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, and this was before they really, I don't think in, in the mid-90s they were doing plastic extrusion. So you couldn't, like, just put a clay copy over the, you know, over, over an existing piece and just blow it out with, uh, with styrene. So it's, or maybe they did. I don't, I don't, I, 1995 yeah, I'm sure. technology. I'm not sure. I don't think so. I mean, that's, we get, we kind of get spoiled nowadays because there's so much you can do with styrene and, and vacuum yeah, extrusion. 3D print it. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's all, you know, they could probably just, yeah, print you a, print you a command module if you want to. <laughs> um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's some beautiful stuff. Now, in your museum, do you have any 3D printed replacement parts or? Um, so we don't have any 3D printed replacement parts, but we do have, uh, 3D printers that we use on different days where you can come in and uh, actually 3D print um, some items or, or watch some things getting printed. Uh, we do have um, a, a couple pieces that we will actually print, like for, for folks coming in and stuff like that. Uh, 
uh, for certain events. You know, we'll uh, we'll print something up to to show off that we can do it. What we like to do is our 3D printer is set up so, you, like I said, it has glass around it. You can actually uh, decide what you're going to make, and then people throughout the day can kind of just hang out and watch this thing getting done. Wow! And, uh, and that's pretty cool. I, I could sit there and watch that all day. Yeah, yeah. I I saw. I, I forget where I saw. I think it might have been in Huntsville. They had a 3D printer, and it was printing a. It was printing a propeller from awesome. the the Wright brother the Wright brothers you know the Wright flyer, and they were printing like a, a one I guess it was like a one seventy second scale it was it wasn't a big thing it was just a little thing, but it was just perfect when it was you know it was just sitting there zip 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 and you <laughs> that's <go> awesome. <laughs> so it's like I don't know how much it would take to to print a whole Wright flyer. That thing looked like it was going to take about an hour just to print the propeller, and you have to make <laughs> two of them. So yeah. it's uh yeah I'm sure you know people listening to this show ten years from now they go what are they talking about it takes like ten minutes so I <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> wow well I think we've beaten this one into the ground but this is you know we're gonna have to say uh, farewell to the uh, well we know the name of it so we're <laughs> we're gonna say goodbye to the lunar module uh, on our next episode but uh, a great a really uh, great episode and uh, more to come as we're uh... gosh these are the final fourteen we're in the we're, we've, we've... I can't believe it. I really I can't believe it. Just such a, a long, a long road over over several years. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we're we're coming down to the end. But we got some uh, we got some good episodes coming up, and oh, well, they're all good episodes. We have some even better episodes coming up. So uh, so check those out. If you missed any of our previous ones, they're always available at the big site Apollo Thirteen Minute dot com, or you can find them on uh, places like Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify. We were on all those major, you know, wherever you, wherever you get your podcast, we're probably on it. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, we're always available on the social media at Twitter on Apollo 13 Minute or at the Apollo 13 Minutes Mission Control on Facebook. Always love hearing from you. A lot of a lot of people jumping in now. We're seeing a lot of, as we're getting toward the end, we're seeing a lot more people listening. So thanks thanks for listening. And, and stay with us right to the end uh, because we've got some good stuff coming up. Uh, it looks like we're coming up on, well, it's a signal in about 30 seconds. So we will see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.